Well, good afternoon. Welcome, everybody. We have a um, really special guest today. We have Robert Lomanak, um, one of our Richland One board members here today, who also is up for re-election, but ha- has had an incredible career and impact in Columbia, South Carolina. And for those you don't know, he, he he's a lawyer, he's a teacher, he's a recovering um, nonprofit <laughs> director. Um, but no, seriously, Robert's given a lot to our community and, and has a lot to offer for the future of our community. But Robert, just tell tell everybody a little bit. Now, I know some people know your story, but not everybody knows your story. Talk about, all right, I, I went from being a lawyer to a teacher, and then all of a sudden I'm on the political side of that. And tell us how that path led you to <laughs> being on the board of commissioners for Richland One. I'm not sure if it's a path uh, as much as uh, something else that I haven't come up with a good analogy yet. But um, when I moved to Columbia in 2000, I was representing men on death row. And in every single case, my primary role was to tell the story of their childhoods, to help explain how they got here. And we had a whole team of people. We had a, a social worker, psychologist, Uh, an investigator who was specialized uh, or had special training to investigate mental health issues. And we would talk to any person who had ever had contact with him as a child and young adult. And I was talking to two teachers of a client named Jesse, his fourth grade and his fifth grade teacher. And by the time I was representing Jesse, he had been on death row for quite some time. And I got his school records and I'll never forget looking at his, they were from Florida uh, outside, of, I can't remember where, Winter Park. And these handwritten cursive report cards. And his fourth grade report card was so good. And at the bottom, the teacher had written, we expect great things from Jesse in the years to come. And I'll never forget reading that, knowing by then what had happened to Jesse before and what had happened after fourth grade. And then in fifth grade, he kind of went off a cliff And there was nobody at the school who was able to say, what's going on with Jesse? What's happening to him? And when I met with those two teachers, they said, what happened to Jesse? I mean, teachers know that's the question to ask, not what's wrong with Jesse, but what what happened to Jesse? And I told them, and they just started sobbing, and they just kept saying, we had no idea. And, of course, I knew they had no idea. Those schools didn't have social workers. They didn't have anybody to help take on the task of answering that question, and so at that point, I decided I wanted to be a teacher and, and try to help change the trajectory of kids' lives before they got to that point. And so I became a teacher in Richland One and immediately recognized that we just aren't giving the support to teachers that, that they need to address these outside-of-school problems. And so I started a nonprofit um, to, to try to do that. And, um, you know, what in rocket science um, – we would just provide whatever support the, the student or their family needed. And, and part of that was based in just building a relationship with them. You know, I learned over my time representing guys on death row and working with their families that you have to earn trust before they'll really confide in you about the things that are the biggest obstacles. Um, and quite often those things are very traumatic and not easy to talk, to, talk about. So um, we worked with students and uh, did that for a number of years and – then I just thought, all right, we're providing these students some support, but their teachers need more support. And so that's when I left the classroom so that I could embed myself with a social worker at a school. And our promise to that group of seventh grade teachers was, if you are struggling with a student in your classroom, one of us will be at your door within 60 seconds of you calling us. And that was a game changer. I mean, people don't realize what a big deal that is because that means the teacher gets to keep teaching, The rest of the kids in that classroom get to keep learning. And the kid who's struggling gets immediate support before they spiral out of control and get in even more trouble. And then start the whole in-school, out-of-school suspension cycle that doesn't really help anybody in the long term. And so we did that. um, And, you know, it's really successful. We've continued doing that. We now have what we call resiliency team. You know, part of the idea was if, you know, in my death penalty cases, I had a team recreating the childhood. Why can't we have a team working with these students and their families? Um, but, you know, I worked in District 1, and I saw some of the problems and would hear about the problems. And, you know, when the seat came open, it was hard for me to say to somebody else, hey, you should file to run. 
because their response was, listen, you were a teacher and, and you are working on education issues. Why aren't you running instead of me? And so finally, I, you know, I caved and I ran and, um, you know, here we are, fast forward a year and uh, up for re-election. Running again. So transitioning from a teacher into the nonprofit, you know, how just go back a little bit on on the nonprofit side about the support of the teachers. How does that work today in Richland One? Is that is that funded by Richland One now? So we're not in Richland One. We were in Richland One for two years, uh, all private funded. We funded everything. Um, we have since moved into Jackson Creek Elementary in Richland School District Two. Uh, we've been there. This will be our fourth year. So what we did is we funded a social worker and a behavior interventionist who worked full-time with the kindergarten group of kids and their families and teachers. And then we moved to first grade with them. So we have followed these families each year. Now, you know, like everybody else, COVID and the school closures impacted yeah. us. But during COVID, for example, while schools were struggling to maintain contact with families, and I think statewide we lost track of about sixteen to 20,000 students which is, if you think about it, incredible. Um, we didn't lose track of a single kid or family for even 12 hours. I mean, we were just so closely connected with them and it built such a good relationship with them. So um, this year, we've got some great partnerships with United Way and Sisters of Charity in Richland too. Um, and so we're gonna have a social worker and a reading interventionist to really focus on that third grade reading and try to make sure we're getting everybody where they need to be by the end of third grade. So. How do you replicate that model into Richland One? Because we got some real challenges in Richland One. We've got kids that, as you know, have been lost during COVID. Um, you hear it from the medical community; they're seeing it now. They're seeing what the what happened. Uh, obesity is a big piece of that. Mental health is a huge piece of that. Uh, obviously, you know, systems have lost track of people in there. But I mean, how do you get a program, a positive program like this? Because as we both know, money is not an issue in Richland One. So, why aren't there resources emulating this pro this this project, especially with the tracking? Because to me, that's what's I, I think what's great about it is I'm following these families. We've identified them. We're following, we're sticking. We're going to make sure they have an opportunity, and I can relate to that because I was that kid and sixth grade who got put into special ed because from first to fifth I had a learning disability and nobody knew it they just they just discarded me my mother was frustrated and smart enough and ended up working two jobs to give me an opportunity to 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 learn how to deal with it but I mean in today's world with the knowledge that we have and, and the funding that's available I mean every school should have this opportunity well, I mean, I, I'd love to see this expanded. Um, I mean, right now, and this isn't just a Richland One problem, this is kind of a statewide problem, the ratio of students to school social workers is just uh, astronomical. I mean, it's supposed to be one for 250 families, and I think we're, you know, in many districts, one for 1,500 families or 2,000 families. Is it because they can't hire them or they're not hiring them? It, well, it's, it's both. Uh, both. And I and I this is you know I think school districts need to accept. I mean we're everybody's saying this is a national problem, right? We don't have enough social workers, we don't have enough teachers, but I, I do think school districts need to accept some responsibility for this, because for years we didn't recognize the importance of school social workers, for example, and so if the demand's not there, there's not going to be a supply of them. And it is true that it's hard now. All of a sudden, once COVID hit, everybody's like, well, we need way more social workers, and everybody wants to hire 25 in one month, and it's not going to happen. But we do need to accept some responsibility for creating that environment. Um, and, you know, same with some other jobs. I mean, school counselors, for example. Um, we do have, I think, close to enough school counselors in most places. But what we've done over the years is burden them with non-school counselor type duties. So they're in charge of testing, they're in charge of the master schedule, and all of a sudden, only 40% of their job is actually doing what they were trained to do. So it doesn't matter that you've got a good ratio if they're not able to do that work. So that's something that I think school districts really need to correct. It is going to take some time. I mean, listen, we don't have enough teachers coming out of school right now, but that's also part of our fault. I mean, we haven't done a very good job of listening to them uh, and, and figuring out what is it that you need to come back. And it's not just about money. 
I mean, I talked to a teacher recently that said, I just took a pay cut and a commute to go to a district that's going to be more supportive in other ways. And so it, listen, money's important. And the fact that uh, some folks in administrative levels make, you know, $150,000 while a teacher's making forty-five, I think that's something that we do need to discuss. But I don't want anybody to think that you can give teachers a $1,500 raise and then ignore all the other issues that are going on that are pushing them out of out of a They're, district that probably is just covering the extra supplies they're bringing in well sure know? absolutely let alone the time and effort absolutely I do, th- I do think that is is in the age-old question if you look historically I, I don't care what field you're in you could be in the medical field you could be a teacher or whatever but anybody who deals with young kids where their minds are being molded and this is the most impression period for them till they're 25 we pay those folks the least amount of money right. and give them the least amount of resources. And and I guess that's a question. Look, Richland One has great facilities, has great bones, has funding that a lot of schools envy and wish they had. But there just seems to be a little bit of disconnect. I mean, I'm hearing it from parents more. When you got grandparents coming up to you and saying, please support a charter school in our neighborhood, and you're like – that's not a good thing. You know, you, you realize that. So how do we get the board to be more engaged into listening to the public? Because this is this has become a national issue. I mean, right now between school boards and prosecutors, the public is stepping in hard and saying, time out. We're not going down this path anymore. We've we've got a correct corrective message. How do we get everybody to say, look, admitting that we've got issues is okay. Nobody's judging you by that. They're gonna judge you if you don't do anything to fix it. We there's this mentality, it's been I think a Columbia thing where you've 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 hidden from your problems and we're trying to push our problems out in the city. Hey, we got them, this is what we're trying to do, and this is how we're gonna fix them. Because they don't they don't get fixed if they're in a drawer. Well, I mean, I don't. I mean, to answer your question, I don't know because uh, if I did, I would have done a better job of it over the last year. I mean, I have found that there is a there's a real resistance to acknowledge uh, failures, and 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 I don't know if it's because in the past people would really pounce on folks when they acknowledged it or whatever, but that's just not a good enough excuse. I mean, you know, part of the problem is I was told early on that the the board member's role is to control the narrative and only say positive things about the district. Uh, That's insane to me because teachers and staff at schools know what the problems are. And so when they watch school board meetings and watch us brag about programs or this or that, and they know that there are problems that we're not even acknowledging, that drives them crazy. I mean, I can't tell you how angry they are after some school board meetings about things like that. I mean, the latest issue is we, we're not paying teachers uh, for their extra work, or at least not doing it in a timely way or without them having to bug payroll for months. Um, that's not how you treat teachers. And if that's not a failure, I don't know what, what one is. I mean, listen, uh, I get this all the time. You can't really talk about teacher vacancies because that's a national problem. Well, that's, that's crazy. Of course we can. Um, and when we talk about teacher shortage, I think we've got to remember there are teachers who want to be teaching, but they're doing other jobs because we've made it so hard, so difficult. We have set them up to fail in many instances. It's not that there's really a shortage. It's just that we've pushed a lot of really good people out of the profession. And in District 1, we had a 20% of the teachers are not returning this year from last year. That is a turnover rate that is unprecedented. And I don't care if there's a national problem. We are worse than other districts in that regard. And the fact that we won't admit that troubles me because it suggests that we're not going to address it. Right now, we have over a 10% vacancy rate two weeks before kids show up at school. Uh, We've got double the vacancies as Richland 2, even though Richland 2 has 6,000 more students. Uh, If that's not shocking to people, then you're living on a different planet because I'm telling you, these vacancies won't be distributed equally. Uh, one school will have no vacancies. Another is going to have seven. And that school that's got seven, all of those duties will be then put on the shoulders of other teachers and staff at that school and overburdening an already burdened group of folks. And then they're going to start leaving. So, I mean, the fact that we won't acknowledge it. I mean, listen, I was told that I could not criticize 
another school board member or the administration. That legally I couldn't do it. That's the sort of culture that we have created. How is that illegal? It's it's not. I mean, what was said was totally unconstitutional. Would have been a you know a violation of the First Amendment. But forget about the First Amendment. Whether it's constitutional, it's a terrible environment to create that we can't criticize. Um, and I'm telling you, that's how teachers feel. Teachers don't feel like they can criticize uh, the district for anything. So we have created this culture where the board is. Uh, spends more time defending the indefensible, making excuses, and deflecting us from some of the solutions that we need to be focused on. So how do we, as the public, help the board, the rest of the board, realize how important it is? You know, because one of the things I learned over the last seven months being mayor is that I, I spent time meeting with all our, we, we had a hard time hiring especially our lower positions um, and hourly positions and and really a, a deep part of our workforce. I mean, we're having a hard time with police as well. Some of it is the way we were recruiting. It was it was partly our own fault. The other is that we ne- we didn't nobody spent any time actually going to listen to the employees. So I went on a tour. I probably met with 65% of the workforce, the majority of them are all folks that are in the field every day. Yeah, money was an issue. But so were in unintended consequences that nobody thought about is, is not allowing people to move into different positions or actually even letting people stay in their positions um, because of barriers that we put up that nobody really thought through and listening to them. And then it went from that to, hey, you know, if we did this, this, and this, we could do a better job to serve our community. We could improve the quality of the work that we provide. And then it was training and technology like this other community does this. It became a hotbed of ideas to improve it. We need that. Uh, I think not just District 1. I mean, this. there are some things that I complain about that, that aren't specific to District 1. And one of them is creating a, a kind of a growth pathway for teachers. Because teachers will often say, I mean, God, I've been in the classroom 15 years, and the only other step is principal or something, right? And so there might, I, I think there are ways, and, and some states and districts are doing it. There are ways to create more opportunities for people to stay in the profession, but not necessarily stay in the classroom or stay in that that job. And I think we need to be looking at that. But we, you know, at the end of the day, we got to talk to teachers. I, I mean, I've been begging uh, the, the superintendent to more proactively engage with teachers at high turnover schools to find out what's going on, why are y'all leaving? What's it going to take to get you to come back next year? Because if people want to complain about what they're calling a teacher shortage, then we better retain the ones we've got. So one of the, the, the pieces of data I've been begging for are the exit interviews. These are the, I want to hear the words of the teachers that left last year. I haven't been able to get them. The other thing I want to see is the teacher turnover for each school. Some schools are going to have 5 or 7% turnover, which is phenomenal. Some are going to have 30 and 40%. Why aren't we focused on those 30%? Why aren't we going to those teachers and staff and saying, what's going on? Well, we can't do it if we don't even have the data. Um, and So, so that, what are they doing with that data? I, I mean, I if you're collecting it, and, and I've become a big data fan because there's no way that you can track anything if you don't have the information. You can't fix anything. You can't improve things. Um what are they doing with it? I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's, data's got to be reported to the State Department. It probably goes to the, the U.S. Department of Education. I, I don't know. We as a board certainly aren't using it because we don't even have it. Um, but, you know, and I was told by one board meeting, somebody said, well, the exit interviews are just the people who are leaving. And that's like the autopsy. Well, you, you need that information. And if we want to ask the teachers who are staying, why are you staying? Great. That's more data. But don't exclude the people that we're leaving, that are leaving us, because those are the vacancies. And listen, uh, t- teacher turnover is expensive. Um, I think on average, it costs about $18,000 to fill a new position. So if you're losing 20% of your teachers, and this doesn't even, this isn't even staff, and we were, I think we we're losing close to that same amount in staff. And, 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 and keep in mind, this is also a district that has a higher percentage of international teachers than any comparable district in the state, and that has uh, a, a baked-in turnover of three to five years because they have to go back to their home country. So th- this turnover is, is crushing 
uh, to our schools. And, you know, been a lot of discussion about school safety for, for really legitimate and obviously good reasons, and we need to be focused on that. But one of the primary ways you have a safe school is to have every classroom filled with a good teacher. And if you've got vacancies, that's going to detract from that. When, when you look at it, and, and I think there's more, there seems to be more people, um, at least from what I hear and see, wanting to be more engaged, and they want to help. They truly do. And their anger and their frustration, I think, what we see in here has to do with people just not even taking the time to listen to them. How do, how do we help? How, how does the, the general public, because to be realistic, we need Richland One to be successful. Because when people are looking at here to relocate, they're looking here to put a business in. I mean, even the colleges. So I have every college and university in this town on a board that meets with me. And these are all kids. And the kids are even talking about it is the challenges that their friends and stuff that are coming from locally are on handling the workload. They're not prepared. I'm hearing it from the administrators and missions. Hey, you know, we'd love to have more kids locally. They're just, a lot of them aren't prepared to handle the workload that they get there. So how do we as a community rally and I know every time somebody says something, they, you know, they, oh, you can't criticize, you can't do this, you, you know. But I'm a believer that if somebody takes the time to give me a critique, that means they care enough. Because if they didn't, they would just tell everybody else. So how do we embrace that? How do we, how do we get the board to work? And how do we pro- how do we help the board, I guess, is what I really come to. How do we help them see that people really do want better for everything and they want to help them? It's not just, you know, it seems like anytime anybody questions anything, it's it's discounted. Well, I was talking to somebody the other day, and I just said, you know, silence is not what we should ever want. Because I, silence doesn't mean everything's okay. It just means people feel disenfranchised. So I have been happy to see people... Uh, engage with us. Some people have criticized me. That's fine. I mean, my gosh, if you're an elected official and you want nobody to criticize you, then you're going to have a pretty miserable experience. Um, I'm seeing more engagement than I've seen in a number of years around uh, school issues. I think that's the starting point. Uh, I think people coming to meetings and providing comments uh, really does matter. Um, I know it doesn't seem like it at the time. Uh, We don't respond to them during the meeting, and then they'll get a, you know, a letter seven to 10 business days later that doesn't, isn't super responsive either, but it matters when people show up. Um, And I will say this too, you know, going to your, your schools in your community and trying to figure out what do y'all need and, and then going to, to your community group or your church and seeing if you can organize it. Now, you know, that's not going to fix all the ails, obviously, of the district, but it is a way for people to also both uh, be vocal about their concerns, but also be engaged in something that is solution-oriented. Um, and and we're, I think we'll see more of that now that people will be back in the, back in the schools, and I think volunteers are going to be back in the schools, and we'll see that. Um, but I do think, you know, people need to to be uh, reading up on what we're doing. I, you know, I, you know, I publish my thoughts at least after every school board meeting, I'm sure it drives some people crazy, but it, it's an attempt to at least get people to engage. Um, and it's just my thoughts. Um, uh, uh, take it for what you will, but uh, we try to, you know, I try to make it easy for people to go to YouTube and watch the, watch the meetings. And I've heard of more and more people watching these meetings. And I would tell people you can watch them on YouTube during the uh, or on the Richland One website during the meeting, but you can watch them on YouTube uh, afterwards. And it doesn't take a ton of time because you can fast forward through some of the stuff that you're not interested in. I think it's really important for people to watch these meetings. And we've gotten a lot of emails recently about decorum and our behavior at the meetings and how we speak to one another. That's, that's really, uh, I think, hitting a nerve with folks, and that tells me people are watching. And that's the first step, I think, to, to creating some change. And, and you need to call, you know, whatever community you live in, call your, call your school board representative, your district representative, and, and talk to them and express your concerns, your praise, whatever. But uh, make that point of reaching out. Yeah, and, and, you know, there's so many 
great aspects about our school district. But unfortunately, it, fe- it feels like we're always talking about things because, and I think half of it would go away if somebody would say, you know what, we do have a problem and we're going to address it and we're going we're gonna to face it this way. We're going to start biting this elephant one piece at a time. And I think that I, I, somehow that message has got to get to the rest of the board and the superintendent and say, guys, there is a problem. And it's okay to admit there's a problem. You just you need to 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 show people that you acknowledge and that that there are paths forward, and maybe we need to do something different. But not to acknowledge it and discount what people are saying. I mean, it, I don't think a lot of what I'm hearing and seeing is unjustified. I mean, if you take the stats that are posted on, on the national website, we don't look good. Well, that's right. And, and, you know, for example, with the payroll issue, I mean, we need to send an email apologizing to teachers that they're having to spend weeks emailing to get paid appropriately. That's not, that's not okay. And we need to acknowledge it. Uh, but you're, there are good things. And I've pointed out, you know, our food, our nutritional services, listen, are there areas for improvement in terms of what we're serving? Sure. Uh, and I know that they've gotten, you know, there's some bad press about that recently. But we are also one of the districts that do not charge anyone to eat breakfast and lunch at our schools. And that is so important. That means nobody can't walk across the graduation stage because they've got some student food bill from eighth grade that their parents didn't pay or, more importantly, couldn't pay. I mean, uh, we're one of the most, I think, equity-driven nutritional services in the entire state. And during COVID, and of course, this isn't just District 1, but I think District 1 stood out in this regard. During COVID, uh, families would have gone without food. Oh, I think I think Richmond One does stand out. I mean, the programs they put in place um, and supported the nutritional plan that they have. I've actually met. I was over at uh, uh, Bradley Elementary and got to meet some of the folks who work in the kitchen. And I've talked to some of the kids and and heard what they were talking about and how. Th- the staff is trying to work with other organizations to fill the gap. I mean, these kids were talking about, oh, my favorite thing is school pizza and this and that. But then they're like, I really like carrots and celery. I wish my mom would buy them. And they're making ways to get these fresh vegetables and stuff to those kids to take home to fill those gaps. So I do. I mean, I, I praise Richmond One for this. Uh, I think it's one of the best programs. I think there are probably a lot of other school districts that could learn. But you're right. They made it so that that – Nutrition, it's not an issue. It shouldn't be anything that just distracts from somebody studying and being able to learn um, because of of outsourced. I I give them 100% credit for it. Well, and and there were some concerns that parents were expressing sometime last year, and they were calling the director of nutritional services, and, and, and now I'm blanking on her name, but she was so responsive to folks, wasn't defensive. She did have, I mean, you know, sometimes people would get pictures and that, accurate but, but there were also some legitimate concerns about what we're what we're feeding kids and things like that and and that's you know those are problems that are easier to talk about than to fix but there are also legitimate problems that we need to be looking at but she was wonderful uh, and part of it is kind of diffusing people's frustration by being responsive and not defensive in answering questions and also acknowledging you're right but we're we may not get there this year or next year and at least making sure people's expectations are realistic. But that's half, I think that's half of the battle. And it meant a lot to those parents that she was so, uh, so responsive. And I, and I think that says a lot about, about her as a leader of that department. But it's also no wonder that department uh, is routinely recognized for being kind of a standout around the state. As you look at Richland One and, you know, several studies have shown that it's lost population over the last decade and, and people moving to other school districts around. What is the school district doing to try to recruit families back in? Well, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, I just learned yesterday that District 2 now has about 28,000 or so students. I mean, it's going to you know, change on any given day, but around 28,000 to 28,500 uh, and we've got around, I haven't looked lately, but around 22,000. When I was a teacher in District 1, that was flipped. Um, so a lot of families are clearly moving out of Richland 1 and into Richland 2. Um, you know, I, I don't, there's nothing that we need to do to try to attract families back other than do the business of 
you know, making sure our schools are, have all the teachers they need, making sure they have all the staff they need. I mean, do it, the, the basic stuff. Um, and we're doing, we're, and, and I'm going to say the city is trying to do things of revitalizing neighborhoods, creating more home ownership opportunities, pushing out new construction, you know, taking lots that we've traditionally just been sitting on and, and getting builders to build. So we can, we want to build back up that capacity in the city. And we're trying to play our role but the education role's got to be with it. That's why I was just curious, what are they doing and where, where does the intersection cross where we're working on that together? Well, and I've said this when I campaigned a year ago, that I think there should be a group of folks from your office, from city council, county council, and the school, both school boards uh, meeting every month and just at least making sure people know what each other is trying to do because, you know, schools, you know, kids bring in so much of the outside of school burdens of living in deep poverty and experiencing trauma, and they bring those into schools every day. And so schools historically have been tasked with trying to address all of that. Um, and what we're seeing now is they're, they're overrun with mental health needs and, and all the other things that come with, um, w- with a lot of our kids who live in unstable environments or unsafe neighborhoods. And, you know, I, I think schools have to, they're going to be the focus of the solution because that's where the kids are. But I think we could do a better job of all collaborating and acknowledging, hey, this, this housing complex, it's, it's a brutal place to live for the tenants. Uh, the code's not being followed. Uh, they don't have the resources to hire an attorney to deal with this. Can you all help? You know, things like that are creating affordable housing in an area that needs it. So I think there's a lot of opportunity. It's not easy. Um, but it's going to take, but what that's going to take is all of us acknowledging where our weak points are and asking for help in those mm-hmm. areas that we don't get to control totally. Because listen, the district doesn't get to control crime. They don't get to control gun ownership and, or, uh, the lack of resources in some neighborhoods. They, they suffer the consequences of those things, but I think we could do a better job of partnering with folks to be, to, to help solve those. Uh. I, I totally agree. You know, I, we're starting to meet with the county. I'm starting to meet with the mayors regionally to talk about collaborative, collaborative efforts and how we need to support each other because we can't survive without each other. Um, and so far, it's it's gone well. But, yeah, I think you're right. Maybe we are at that tipping point where it's time. All right. Because I don't know that we've ever had a joint Richland 1, Richland 2, county, city I mean, but, you know, it's not just us. It's it's Forest Acres, you know. It's right. Arcadia Lakes. I think we ought to bring everybody to the table. We're all vested together, and if we're collectively sharing information, if, if nothing comes out of it but sharing information where we can use our collective services to improve, nobody loses. It's a win. That's right. Uh, no, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the problems is sometimes the issues are overwhelming and hard to address on a broad scale. And so I'm, I'm a big proponent of, all right, then let's start really small and see if we can address something small and then scale it once we figure that out. But at least we'll be making progress somewhere, maybe not as quickly as we want, and maybe not as broadly as we want, but it's better than inertia, which I think quite often sets in on some of these broader, broader problems. Uh, you know, I, I just think the more dialogue we have, the more opportunity to collaborate. And that's just been something Columbia as an area has not done. We've seen it in a lot of the economic studies. They've shown where we've missed opportunities because we don't collaborate together. And then you look at Charleston and Greenville, Spartanburg, the upstate, the low country, they come together on big projects or, or, or work together a lot better even the elected officials, you know, they spend more time working together to solve problems. And, you know, maybe we can spark that. And maybe that should be our, our, our goal for 2023 is change change the way we communicate with the others, engage with each other and sit around the table and say, all right, what can we do to help each other? Sure. I think that'd be great. You know, a, a lesson I learned not too long ago was approaching a problem with have you thought about Yep. You know, have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? Because it sparks people to, to take a look and say, well, maybe we haven't tried all the different avenues. Maybe we're leaving things on the table. And, uh, and I always tell the story. I used to take my managers from the restaurants and take them to other restaurants and make them sit in a booth and eat and look around. And I'd let them critique them to death. Everything they were doing wrong from the approach or whatever. And then I said, all right, now when you go back to your restaurant, Go sit in the booth in there and look around and critique it the way you critique this. 
Because when we're in the same environment every day, right? We do we 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 miss things. I think that's right, and I think this would also allow us to all, I think, recognize how difficult each other's jobs are. Because I will tell you, as critical as I've been at the superintendent, that's a brutal job. I mean, it is. I feel there are times when a community member will send me an email that is a legitimate email about an issue in the neighborhood or a drainage issue or whatever that might relate to the school. It's absolutely a legitimate issue. Um, and I obviously will send it to the superintendent because he needs to know about it and he's the appropriate person to address it or have some, you know, delegate it. But I, every time I do that, I'm like, how many other emails like this in one day is he getting? And those are the tangential issues, right? Not these other, you know, more pressing things. Um, and, you know, uh, poverty is, is a huge challenge. It's expensive. Um, generational poverty is such a big challenge that I don't think we as a society have really acknowledged is, is the challenge that it is. Um, and so, you know, Richland one, that's obviously, I think, Deep poverty is its biggest, uh, its biggest enemy and its biggest challenge. So I want to make sure, and I, I think more collaboration would open people's eyes to what that really looks like also in a school. Um, and so, you know, when, when someone says, well, God, that's cool, they get a lot of money, and those teachers only have like 14 kids in their classroom, uh, you know, second graders. Well, if those 14 kids, if two are on grade level in reading and then three or one year behind and four or two years behind and, and, then, and, and then another three or three years behind aren't even ready for kindergarten, that's brutal for that teacher. So I think learning a little bit more about those challenges so that people can, it's not just appreciate what people are going through, but then I think be more open to uh, what we really need to be successful. You've, you've been on the board for a while. I mean, what do you, what do you think – this is the most memorable experience you've had there so far. Well, I mean, um, gosh, I don't know. I, I, you know, quite often when I'm at these meetings, I'm, I'm picturing some of the faces of my students or folks who are in my nonprofit, some of whom I'm still in touch with. I mean, they're like 22 years old now. And, and trying to think, what would they say? What would they think? What was their experience? How would this have impacted them when they were at school? Um, and and I try to think through that. I mean, there, there, one you know, kind of comical uh, exchange when another board member was saying I couldn't criticize and I was disagreeing, and it was just like, uh, no, you can't. Yes, you can. I mean, the transcript which was published in the newspaper the next day, I think, was literally, yes, I can, no, you can't, yes, I can. And I thought, well, that's, none of that's very helpful uh, for the public, and it certainly didn't serve in our students. So I, I, I kind of regretted, regretted that exchange. But I will say this. I spoke to a class of just wonderful teacher cadets um, sometime in the, in the spring, and I, I usually give a presentation about trauma and education and, and uh, adverse childhood experiences and poverty and things like that and talk a little bit about my legal career. But I really shortened my presentation this year and I turned to them and I just said, how are y'all doing? Because I know this has been a rough couple years. And they just said, we are not okay. I mean, literally, this young woman raised her hand and said, we are not okay. And nobody asked us if we were okay. We started school and all we heard are, you're behind. You're behind. And this was, they weren't criticizing their teachers or even their school, but that's the, that's been the, the push. I mean, that's what everybody kept saying about COVID is they're getting behind, they're getting behind in the news stories. And that's the big focus, not are they okay? And of course, at some point we did start to recognize, Hey, our kids aren't okay. And now we're recognizing we've got an adolescent mental health crisis of a, of a generation and we don't have the support services to address it. But I just thought that was so telling. Um, for students to open up like that and kind of acknowledge that. And that, that's one of my most memorable uh, discussions with students this year. Um, so uh, we'll, hopefully we'll have some more positive memories for the school board this next year. So coming into your next year, you have election in, in, in the process. What's, what's, what's the number one thing you, you want to achieve that you, you, you believe that will really make an impact at Richland One? I, you know, um, do better by our teachers and staff. I mean, quite often I'm very guilty of using teachers when I'm talking about everybody at the school because one of the first calls that I got that 
was a red flag for me about payroll issues was from an hourly employee, kind of an older woman, an hourly employee at a middle school. And she was discussing the issues that she's been having uh, for a couple of years. Um, and so, you know, it's not just teachers in the building that, that are hurting, it's the staff too. And if you don't have instructional aides and if you don't have janitorial staff, which, you know, we've been struggling with as have other places, um, you know, it, Teachers notice, and it's and it's stressful for teachers. And so it's not just teachers, but we've got to do better by the folks who are working in the classrooms. You know, I think you could debate who are the most important people in the, in, in the school, the kids or the people looking after the kids. And, and I would argue it's the people looking after the kids. The kids will be okay if we make sure that all the folks in those classrooms and all the folks that are supporting those classrooms are okay. I think that's when the kids will be at their best. I'm going to switch gear on you here at the um, end of the show um, to ask you as a commissioner, a citizen, um, what, what do you think we can do in the city to improve the city that would have a positive effect on the school district? Well, you should have given me that ahead of time. I mean, um, it's probably above my pay grade. I mean, I think not to, not to try to get out of it. I think part of it would be, for us to collaborate and start really developing some, some relationships. And that's going to take us on the school board being open to that. I mean, that the first and foremost, I mean, I think we've got to be willing to do it. Um, you know, everybody's been talking about the, the obvious rise in youth violence and, and guns and things like that. And there are a lot of panels and everybody's well-meaning. I mean, they're, they're, you can, you're not going to find somebody who's in favor of youth violence, right? <laughs> I, I mean, it, it, but, but sometimes people will treat somebody like that if they're questioning an approach. And, and I think that's a little bit unfair. I think you could have 100 people in a room and, and super smart people, and they would come up with very different solutions. Um, I will say uh, I don't think there's a short-term solution. I don't think that there's an aspirin to solve the issues in education or in our communities. I think it's going to be, it's going to take a sustained approach, but I will, you know, there's a student um, in our first cohort of my nonprofit. We started with him in eighth grade and great kid, but he had really gotten a lot of trouble in sixth, seventh grade. I mean, if anyone even hinted at disrespecting him, he would really kind of go off teacher, kid or whatever. And we began working with him, and we weren't doing anything special other than just developing a relationship with him. We would go to dinner every night after we met. So every two weeks, we'd go to a different restaurant around Columbia. And in March, I realized, it's like, oh, my God, you don't have any behavior referrals this year. I said, I don't want to jinx it now because we've got two more months. But how have you done this? And he looked up at me and shrugged his shoulders and said, I don't know. I just started to care. And what our team had helped provide with the teachers was room for him to hope. And hope is a luxury for a ton of kids in our communities. And he was then able to make some really tough choices in high school about who he hung out with in his community and, and who he didn't hang out with so that he could stay out of trouble. And, but what's troubling is the kids that he decided he couldn't hang out with because he was scared he was going to get in trouble. Those kids need the same support mm -hmm. that, that he was getting from us and we weren't giving to them because we just couldn't give it to everybody. I mean, we were, we're a tiny nonprofit. We were six kids in each cohort because we were determined to be intensive and stick with those kids until they graduated uh, high school. So we have got to recognize that for a lot of kids, the despair is so deep and that we are part of that problem and it's going to take real time and effort. And, you know, people are talking about increasing the penalties for this or that. Uh, I, you know, I think when we gave this kid room to dream, he then did everything else on his own. I mean, we were there beside him, and he knew we were there, but he made some great choices and, 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 and did the hard work on his own. Yeah, you know, and, and that becomes a balancing act as well. Um, I, I had unfortunate we were in uh, Charlotte visiting the police department training center there and had an opportunity, and one of the officers had been shot that week there by a 15-year-old kid, been arrested 72 times. Yep. And, and when you hear numbers like that, you're like, this this is crazy, but we're seeing it here. And, and so we're caught in a position, like you said, you know, there has to be some consequences on one side of the coin, but there also got to be opportunity for people to redeem themselves. And, and where's that border? And I think one of the struggles – 
we see is is how do we get to those kids early enough that they don't make that decision and can we save them once they've made that decision because some of the kids are are I hope none of them are lost. We want to try to get them all back, but we're seeing just such an increase of 18 to 22-year-olds. And had we been able to get to that kid when they were nine and, you know, like you said, and still hope, yes, there is an opportunity for you. I think there's some challenges in my personal opinion. I don't have the data, but seeing data from other communities that learning disabilities and, and I want to figure out how I can use the mayor's seat to draw light on that and get funding to that. But I think we're losing a lot, especially in communities that don't have the resources to get evaluated. You know, behavioral sometimes in a classroom is not because they're just trying to be disruptors. They literally don't know how to learn. Well, and that's, that's exactly right. And, and that's why the question that teachers know to ask is what's happening to you when you're six or seven or eight and you're struggling? No kid. I've literally never met a kid who wants to come to school and fail at it. Never. But there was a kid that we were working with, and he was in seventh grade, and he was, quote, misbehaving. Well, his misbehavior was um, he would leave the classroom and walk down the hall and sit on this bench by himself. It's the saddest, most pitiful thing I've ever seen to watch a kid do that. But he was getting in trouble. He was getting written up. And I said, well, wait a minute. What's happening to him? And I said, "Is anybody? Can he, are we sure he can read? Uh, has anybody looked at his test scores? And his test scores were 3% or below since elementary school, and he had never been evaluated, which meant he had never been provided the support services he needed. So I said to somebody, I said, for this kid to force him to come to school every day without providing the support, that's like picking someone who is horrible at basketball and saying, you're going to come in tomorrow and every day for 180 days and you're going to stand at the free throw line and we're going to bring 30 of your your peers and they're going to sit in the stands and they're going to watch you mess up shooting a free throw for seven hours a day. That's what this kid felt like. So... Those, and I'm telling you, you do that long enough and the, the kid's going to feel like he doesn't have many choices. And, and certainly we were complicit in diminishing and dimming the hope for, for that kid. And I think we've got to do better by that. But that's what I'm talking about, about setting teachers up for failure. Here this kid was 3% below on all the standardized testing, which suggests some explicit issues with learning. And, of course, his teachers weren't being provided that information or certainly not so any support to deal with it. To so, to right, right. Wow. Well, you know, so many opportunities, um, and I think collaboration is the key. I mean, I think being able to make sure that we're all pulling from all sides, we got to get the churches back in, we got to get parents back in. Um, I remember we went years ago with Richland One to to in the housing authority to go to Mobile and see. I mean, they were creating incentives to get parents engaged and then they would identify another family member who could be there in the afternoon who would take the time to make sure that they were getting that extra knee uh, help and and showing them how to study or, or making sure their work was getting done so they had a driven purpose they saw success building right um uh you know look it, it is a a problem we all have to be engaged with and but we got to talk about it yeah, absolutely. We got to admit it, and we got to work together to solve it. Um, quick, quick little f- firestorm of questions before we uh, close out the show. Favorite place to go eat with the family in Columbia? Ooh, okay, you didn't prepare me for these. I'm not a very fun person, so answering the fun questions like this is a struggle. Um, and I will also tell you, I've got two sons, and one, maybe both don't like wearing like real pants so you know it's got to be a place where joggers are appropriate and, uh, but i really miss blue cactus uh that was one of my favorite oh, favorite Br- places to go bringing a little bit of memory lane down the yeah. road but have you been to enzo's yet yeah oh i i hate to tell you how long it took me to get there but i went probably about a month ago unbelievable best sandwich in town it, yeah. And it's a two-meal sandwich. That's what I, I try, love about it. It's, it's a two-meal sandwich. You a, cannot eat that all at one a, time. There's a lot of prosciutto in there, yeah. And I'm excited to see what they do next door with their little uh, Italian restaurant right. that they're going to be working on. 
Favorite ice cream? Oh, God. I haven't had ice cream in a long time. How, how awful is that? Well, all right. Listen, you I got to say, in Columbia, the, South Carolina. Cherry, the cherry milkshake at Rosewood Dairy Bar Ooh, is the best in Columbia. Man, look, look at him. He's a two for two in old school. <laughs> Somebody was talking about the dairy bar the other day. They're like, I can't believe that place has made it in this neighborhood. Like, it's been here since the 40s, y'all. It's not going anywhere. <laughs> it is going to outlast all of us. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Last restaurant, we always talk about food on the show. Now, I'm surprised it took us this long to get to food <laughs> because we talk about food all the time. Favorite date night restaurant for you? Whew. With two boys, you got to be getting out. <laughs> That's right. I mean, um, Il Giorno on Divine went there recently. Awesome. Um, Bourbon's a good place. Lula Drake. It's a tie. Yeah, I got a, quite a few. See, I like that variety. That's you right. don't go to the same place all the time. No, no, definitely not. Uh, we have, we we have so many. You know, I'm hoping that as these businesses continue to grow and we get more people getting them together with the schools and uh, and I'm hoping as we identify kids, helping kids go to apprenticeships. You know, I was talking to some folks in other cities that they that that's what they've been incentivizing is these apprenticeships and these kids are excelling. They're making real money. And they were telling me that kids were starting off and they're excelling so well. It was just getting them to know that it's okay. Right. You know, it's okay to go learn. You have the ability to, and I think the, the Chris Hively and Joey McQueenie who are pushing this tech and getting us to, to make the soil conditions here prime for businesses. I think, are showing people that, that the more founders we have, the more people see there's opportunities and they can look in the mirror and say, that could be me. Right. Yep. Um, so I'm excited what's there, but Robert, I appreciate you taking the time um, to be on the show, but let everybody know how they get in touch with you, how they can donate to you, how they can get involved in the campaign and how they can just find out information on how they can help make a difference at Richland Warren. Well, don't, don't worry about donating to me, but um, my cell phone number is 803-351-0436. Call, text anytime. And my website is robert at robertlamanac.com. And you can find my other social media and things there. But I post a blog update after every school board meeting. So go there, uh, reach out if you've got concerns about me or the district or whatever. And I'm always willing to meet and talk. And I know he said donate, but folks, Robert really cares he has been on both sides, both as a teacher, uh, actually three sides, a parent, a teacher, and a board member. So support him. At the end of the day, everything he's trying to do is improve the lives of those kids in our community that we all owe. A, uh, we, we should all be giving back. As, as I tell the story all the time, you know, when I got dropped off at school in sixth grade, to learn how to deal with it, my mother gave me three things to, to focus on. One was that I had to work hard. The second was that every challenge was an opportunity. And the third one is when it's all said and done, you got to give back for what you've been given. And Robert's giving back. So y'all give to him, support him. Thanks for being here, Robert. It's good to have you on the show. Until next time, we'll see you later. Thanks, Mayor. Mm-hmm.